Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 5. It's uh, verses 30 through 47. That's printed in the bulletin for you. Um, there are some Bibles available on the table in the back, along with the children's supplies if you need one. Uh, so we're arriving at the end of Jesus' sermon in uh, chapter 5. Here it's been a pretty deep sermon, maybe a little heady. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it it's, been, it's been deeper than we could really get into. I mean, we could have a whole series on um, just what he's talking about in this sermon here. But uh, <clears throat> the situation with the disabled man that he healed earlier that's recorded for us in uh, chapter 5, it afforded him the opportunity here to give this very deep sermon to his opponents. He's preaching to uh, people who are his opposition, right? The, the religious um, Jewish establishment. He's addressing the fact that people have a tendency to resist him. He's addressing that fact head on with his opponents. You have a tendency to resist me. And this is normal for for all kinds of people. Uh, the disabled man was doing it. The Jewish religious authorities were doing it. It's the problem of unbelief. It's the problem of unbelief, and it's been a problem almost as long as humanity's been around. Very simply, Jesus thinks it's good for you to trust him. Jesus thinks it's good for you to trust him. He wants you to believe in him for your salvation. He gives you witnesses that testify to who he is for that purpose, so that you would believe unto salvation, but, but he knows that you may very well reject what these witnesses have to say, and he explains why, in fact, it's highly likely that you will. Uh, he's, um, he's not deluded about that. He knows that you may well and probably will reject the witness, uh, what, the, what the witness has to say about Jesus Christ. So, nevertheless, he knows exactly what you need and he does provide the way forward to trusting him. It'll take a deep change in you, but it will be good for you. That's what we'll talk about this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, thank you for your word, this testimony about your son, who's the savior of the world. We pray that you would overcome the obstacles in our hearts and in our minds to believing even overcome the resistance that we all naturally have, whether we're uh, believers or not. There are ways in which we resist who you are and what you've done for us and what it means to have a relationship with you on your terms. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to help us to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just... Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, or not deemed true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, but for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So I remember um, in college, just before I became a Christian, my freshman year in college, uh, the, the truth about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, about uh, Christianity, it, uh, it came primarily as a deep challenge to me. It was the, f- the first thing it was to me was a challenge, a deep challenge to me. It, it felt like my whole reality was being attacked. My whole reality was being threatened by this alternate reality that, that we see in the scriptures. And I was desperate to defend everything that I had chosen to believe to that point and everything that I had chosen to be as an atheist, someone who uh, rejected the idea of God. <clears throat> At first, I felt like I was actually up to the task of defending my existence against the reality of, of God's word and, and of Jesus. Uh, like I could, I could put on my armor, I could pick up my weapons, I could pick up enough weapons or pick up the right weapons and victoriously dismantle all of the opposing, uh, opposing threatening arguments. And the main thing that I had to do was very clear. The main thing I had to do was to resist the Bible because that's the source of this alternate reality that I did not want to be true. The main thing I had to do was resist the Bible because it struck against the core of my identity, struck against the core of my worldview. If the Bible was true, everything would be turned upside down in the most painful ways imaginable, I'm sure. If I lost in my fight against the Bible, then I would lose everything. So I went into battle, and this was the ground I stood on. This was the, the, the starting point, was that this thing cannot be true. Let me find out how to prove that. This thing cannot be true. Cannot allow this thing to be true. So let's figure out how to dismantle it, tear it apart. Resistance was my starting point. Resistance was my starting point. It's the real reason that I came up with arguments against believing the scriptures, against trusting Jesus. Um, so with that prior resistance compelling me, I then set up tests for the Bible to fail. If I set the tests, then I know the Bible will not live up. It will not pass my tests according to my criteria for judgment. 
So I required Christianity to meet my demands, to make sense to me, to meet my standards for truth, because ultimately I insisted, is what was really going on, that I would be the judge of what is true. I'll be the judge. And that's the position that I had a prior commitment to defend. That's why I had to fight against the Bible. It cannot be true because it threatens my ability to be the judge of what is true. So this desire to be the judge, even of God himself, to be the judge of God himself, that desire, it precludes faith, makes it impossible actually to believe and trust in Christ. Unbelief is what happens when we exalt ourselves to the position of judge, the judge of what is true, the judge of what is right, the judge of God, who God is and who he should be. Unbelief is what happens when we exalt ourselves to that position. Unbelief happens not because we can't believe most of the time. I just can't bring myself to believe. It's, It's because we won't. We will not. We don't want to. Believing Believing Christ means the end of our autonomy, the end of our self-rule. It means giving up our own centrality, our own supremacy. It means giving up our own sufficiency. It means relying, depending on God, on his revelation, on his judgment, on his mercy, rather than on our ability to understand the world and to manage it and control it for ourselves. That's what believing Christ means. Believing Christ means it means the S word. Submission. It's worse than the other, the four-letter S word that you thought I was going to say. <laughs> believing Christ means submitting ourselves to him, and nobody likes that word. Nobody likes that idea. Submission. That's what belief means. <clears throat> so we resist testimony about him because we don't want to do that. We resist testimony. Testimony comes to us and we resist it. Now, when all of reality testifies to God, ultimately you have to reject all of that too, which is why we've got philosophers who can't help but undermine our ability to know anything really about reality. That's the point the philosophers bring us to. You can't know anything. We can't know that we can know anything, right? And, and even scientists who are insisting now, we can't even trust our senses, our own perception, what can be observed, the, the observable world around us. We can't actually even know anything at all, even about tangible material things. Scientists insist that now. It's what comes when all reality testifies to God and you've got to resist testimony to God. If you've absolutely got to reject the idea that all truth is God's truth, you've stripped away your ability to believe in anything really. But this fundamental desire, is this desire not to submit to God, to protect my self-rule and my autonomy, my position as judge over him, this fundamental desire, that's why the Jews kept rejecting true testimony about Jesus. They saw him. They saw him and they heard him. And they rejected, and they eventually had to fabricate evidence against him and set up false witnesses to testify against him, to testify according to what what they wanted to believe to be true. 
<clears throat> it's this fundamental resistance to testimony about Christ that Jesus is addressing in our passage. He says, um, it starts off kind of strangely, I think. He says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's not deemed true. Um, he's, Jesus is fully capable of providing true testimony about himself, but he's talking about the kind of testimony that would hold up in court, the kind of testimony that would be persuasive to other people. And even the Bible requires multiple witnesses to establish the truth of a matter, right? Multiple witnesses. So if he's saying, if I'm just testifying and I'm the only one saying it, you can't trust that, right? He happily concedes that point. But he reminds us here, there, now there are other witnesses. He says in verse 32, uh, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's probably speaking, this is almost like a side note, something to catch your attention that he'll talk more about later, I think. Um, but he doesn't really describe this much more in our passage. He's probably talking about the Holy Spirit here, whose, whose person and work are somewhat mysterious. But, uh, but this is the one that Jesus later calls the Spirit of truth, whose very work is to confirm Christ to our hearts. Um, but again, Jesus teaches more on the Spirit later. This is only a brief mention, so we're not going to spend much time there. But he continues. He spends quite a bit of time talking about John the Baptist. He says, you, my opponents, people who are resisting testimony about me, you don't want to hear about who I am and, and what I have to say. You don't want to receive me. He said, you, you sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So <clears throat> Jesus doesn't look to John's testimony for vindication about himself, like he needs to feel better about himself by hearing more people tell him, no, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You're the son of God. You're, you're right. What you say is true. He's not looking for vindication. He doesn't need that for himself, but he calls it to their attention for the sake of others, right? so that others would believe in him for their salvation. He says, John the Baptist, he was a, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a while to rejoice in his light. So humanly speaking, humanly speaking, John the Baptist was your best shot at believing. And you were on the fence there for a while. You, you went to ask him more about me, but eventually you became unwilling. And the way Jesus is talking about this is this is a matter of willingness, willingness to rejoice, not just struggling through mental, intellectual arguments. This is a matter of, of willingness to rejoice in the testimony about Jesus. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. <clears throat> in verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the works that he's doing. God's historical actions, his actions in history, in and through history, are a huge part of biblical revelation. The, the Christian faith is, is a historical faith. It's where God encounters us in history, where history means something. It's not just a set of rules or set of ideas, right? That's not what the Bible is. The Bible has so many historical documents uh, uh, recording God's historical actions. That's a huge part of, of revelation for our, the sake of our salvation. God has providentially upheld all things from the beginning of the universe, and he has miraculously intervened in history in so many ways that are recorded in uh, especially the Old Testament, what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the scriptures 
He says, the Old Testament not only records these great works of God, it commands our meditation upon their significance. It doesn't just say once, this is the amazing stuff God did. It says over and over again, remember that. Think about that. Meditate on that. It means something. If you want to know God, look at what he's done. Look at the things he's done. Ponder his works. It says in Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So his works say something about him. We see divine power at work in the life of Jesus Christ, who is already at this point, point in John's gospel, he's already renowned. Everybody in the nation is talking about the signs and wonders that he's performed. Jesus did things that only God could do. That is, that is undeniable, really. Jesus did things that only God could do. And he says that these works that the Father's given him, these works testify that he's come from God, that he was sent by the Father because these works are given to him by the Father, which is another example of his own, it's his submissiveness to the Father, even in the miraculous exercise of his power. We think of Jesus as God, he can just do whatever he wants on his own. No, he received his, his power to do these things from the Father through the Holy Spirit. He's submissive in that relationship at all times and in every way, right? So it's another example of his submission to the Father. The Father gave me these works, and they show that I come from him. And the Father who sent me, he says in verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. I think this is talking about the, the scriptures that have been written before. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Um, These people prided themselves on having the word of God embedded in them. They memorized huge portions of it. And he says, you don't have it abiding in you, because you don't come to me. The The Father is the ultimate witness to Jesus Christ, and he has testified to his Son throughout the Scriptures, again, the Old Testament, like, like the Old Testament reading that Sam read, uh, and and these, this testimony in the scriptures is actually, Peter says, more sure testimony about who Jesus is than, than seeing him work visible miraculous signs. But Jesus is saying his opponents refused. They refused to hear that testimony. It's not that they didn't understand it. They were really wrestling with it. It's they refused. <clears throat> In one sense, the people he was talking to were absolute biblical experts. They knew it by heart. They were teachers of it. But they didn't study the scriptures in order to hear the voice of God. They didn't want to hear the voice of God. They told that to Moses on the mountain. Please don't ever let us hear that again. In fact, Jesus says uh, they've never heard God's voice. Even though they'd spent so much time in the written word, They'd never heard the voice because they hadn't believed Jesus. They'd refused to come to him. They used the scriptures wrongly to achieve a sort of self-righteousness. 
apart from humble, faithful submission to God. They thought they would find life in the Bible itself. They did their daily devotions thinking that that was something in and of itself. That in reading about its principles and its commandments and its worldview and doing what it says, right? The Bible's going to tell me what I need practically to do, to think, to find eternal life, to, to find some ultimate satisfaction. But Jesus is saying the Bible is first and foremost about him. It's the Father's testimony to him. It's the Father's testimony to the Son and to the life that's found in him and only in him. Uh, Frederick Bruner is a commentator on this passage, and he says that the Bible is, is not about the Bible. Right? The Bible is not meant to be an encyclopedia of religious knowledge or facts. It's meant to be the book that points to Christ. It's possible to be a serious Bible student and to miss the whole point. Jesus' major problem people in his time were Bible believers. They may still be his major problem people today. <clears throat> I remember after becoming a Christian in college, I got uh, really excited about studying the scriptures for several years reading it a lot, memorizing a lot, <clears throat> thinking about it all the time, and it felt, I, I felt like it made me powerful. If I really spent a lot of time reading this and <clears throat> changing my thinking and taking it into me so I've got m huge parts of it memorized and I can impress other people, I, it makes me powerful to know the Bible so well, to know it better than others who have been Christians for their whole lives. Right? It gives you a sense of power or self-satisfaction I used the scriptures not as they were intended to drive me to Christ. Not as they were intended, but in a sense to fulfill a need as sort of a replacement for Christ so that I didn't have to go to him. <clears throat> I wanted people to admire me for my knowledge of the Bible. And when I achieved that, it felt like glory. That's what it felt like. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, Jesus says. So there's a deep universal desire <clears throat> that humans have for some kind of glory that we look to get for ourselves from others or even just imagine it for ourselves in, uh, in various ways, but that... Um, that desire for glory effectively crowds out belief in God. It crowds out faith, crowds out trust in God, personal trust in him. <clears throat> um, Raymond Brown says, the failure to accept Jesus is really the preference of self. The failure to accept Jesus is really the preference of self. We feel that true glory must mean myself being at the center of the universe. Isn't that what glory means? I'm the center of attention. It, it must mean true glory comes when I am supreme, when I achieve perfect, autonomous, impressive self-sufficiency. That's what glory means. Of course, that's antithetical to the idea of trusting in another, relying on another or depending on God for the gift of life, and this is where this all comes together. How can we believe? How can we believe, Jesus asks, 
when, when believing is such an absolute challenge to my self-centered existence? How can we believe when it means giving up my claim to the position of judge, the center of the universe, when it means my giving up my pursuit of glory in my way? How can we believe? You can't, Jesus implies. Those things are mutually exclusive. You've got to hear his voice. You've got to hear his word. You've got to hear the word of God. You've got to hear Jesus. Jesus is God himself. This is what you need to hear. Jesus is God himself. He's very God of very God. The true center of the universe, if ever there was one. And even he says, I can do nothing on my own. Autonomy has no place in his good reality. Not in not even in his being God. Autonomy, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, grasping for power, it has no place, even in his being God. For us to maintain our self-rule by resisting Jesus and refusing to come to him, it goes straight against our own nature as we've been created in God's image, and it violates the fundamental order of all reality is created by this God, sinful humanity. Sinful humanity seeks uh, to be the center of the universe, but it doesn't have to be this way. Sinful humanity seeks autonomy and self-sufficiency. Jesus says it doesn't have to be this way. This is not how it's supposed to be. And here Jesus is, the perfect human being, and he's given up all self-rule. What Jesus reveals here about God is so good. It's so good. Can't you hear it? He says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But Jesus really is the judge. He's said that already in this sermon. He's the divine judge of all. But this isn't a position of self-exaltation and opportunity for power for him. That's not what it is for him. The judge of all the earth submits his will to the Father. And this is exactly why he's good. This is exactly why his judgment is just, he says, because he submits his will to the Father. For us to maintain our position where it's my will, I'm the supreme judge, to refuse to believe in him, to refuse to submit our will to him, that's not good. It's bad. Pretty simple. Right? And if we acknowledge his authority, which is the, the authority of the humbly submissive one, then we're acknowledging the authority of the one who's the most beautiful person imaginable. Can you hear that? He says, I do not receive glory from people. For Jesus to say this is incredible. Isn't that why God has done everything that he's done? To get glory from us. Well, that's what a supreme creator does, right? Creates worshipers to grovel before him. Well, that's the kind of glory I'm looking for anyway. But Jesus is no egomaniac. Don't project yourself onto him. Leslie Newbegin, this is a quote that's at the beginning of the bulletin for you. That 
He says that the glory of God is his actual presence in such a manner that it needs no other witness. This glory is present in Jesus precisely because he neither seeks nor receives glory from men, makes no claim for himself, but is the totally humble, obedient, self-effacing, and therefore transparent bearer of the glory of the Father, in whose name alone he has come. As long as men and women seek to be something in the eyes of one another, they're stopped from recognizing that the only true glory is to be found in total self-emptying. So Jesus reveals God not to be a glory hawk. That's not who he is. That's not why he's done everything that he's done. He's not a glory hog. He's a glory giver. God's a glorifying God. The person's glorifying each other. The Father glorifying the Son. The Son glorifying the Father in the Holy Spirit. That's who's at the heart of all reality. The triune God, he's the only God there is, Jesus says. The only God is a glory giver, which is great news. It's always been his delight. It's always been his plan to share his glory with you in eternity. And you may seek this through faith in Jesus Christ. You may seek glory from God through faith in Jesus Christ. As you stop projecting yourself onto him, stop thinking that he's an egomaniac who can't be trusted, and, and you start believing that everything good and glorious about him is yours. He freely shares it with you as a gift of his grace. You can give up your resistance knowing that Jesus reveals a good God who gives his own glory to you as a gift. Does that overcome your resistance? Do you hear the goodness in that? Submitting yourself to this God, acknowledging that he is the true and only God behind all reality, it will mean true glory for you. Not the self-centered kind gotten by your own means, but the eternal kind shared by the divine persons in love, in real love. And Jesus thinks it's good for you to trust him. Now maybe you can see why his judgment in the matter is trustworthy. So believe the clear testimony about him and go to him for eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, who you are and the way that you speak to us can be confusing, yet... Um, at very least we pray that you would help us to receive your word as good to desire to look further into it to search the scriptures not just for their own sake um, but to search the scriptures in order to find you to discover you not to resist and reject you but to pursue you and to receive you We pray for a personal encounter with you that will change the way that we think about everything, that will change us from the inside out, the way we feel about everything, the way we respond to everything, and the way we live and and behave in this world. And at the heart of all of this, we need to know what it means to have a relationship with you where you freely share everything that is yours with us so that we could live this life not seeking to get glory inappropriately, but pursuing a relationship with you and resting in a relationship with you because of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you would uh, turn our hearts upside down by the good news of your word, that, that you reveal a good God to us who desires to share glory with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.